0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the week of July 10th, 2020, otherwise known as COVID Lockdown Week 16 in North America. Different lockdown times in different places. I'm Charles Hain, writer for No Film School. I'm here with writer for No Film School, Michelle De La Tour. Hi, everyone. We are talking about a prominent, prominent bold move by Disney Plus to up their subscriber counts, bringing a major Broadway musical to their platform and the implications for us all. We're talking about some theater owners in New Jersey taking inspiration from churches and getting litigious. We have two tech stories this week we're talking about. First, we're going to talk about the Octazoom, which is not its official name, but it is a new audio recording device from Zoom Audio that deserves some conversation. And we're going to be talking about a brand new camera that just got released officially Thursday, July 9th, and that is the Canon R5, and that is probably what all of you are here to listen to us talk about, which is why we're doing it last. All of that this week on the No Film School Podcast. All right, our first story this week, a little musical that I have not seen called Mm -hmm. Hamilton. Has arrived at Disney Plus. And if anybody hasn't seen this graphic, I think it's in our article on this. If not, just look it up on Twitter. It's an amazing graphic. uh, They compared the trend lines for people searching for how to get Netflix, how to get Hulu, and how to get Google Plus. I mean, uh, how to get Disney Plus. And, oh, my God, the announcement of Hamilton and then the lead up to Hamilton arriving at Disney Plus, that spiked like crazy on Google. They also, because whoever made this graphic is cruel, included how to get Quibi. And it's just this like it's almost like the it's like the X axis just got smudged. Does everybody have to be this mean to Quibi? I guess we all do. I guess it's just so cruel. Poor Quibi. Um, Because there's some interesting creators making good stuff there. Wesley Lowry doing interesting stuff. But the platform makes no sense. This isn't about Quibi bashing. This is about talking about the strategic decisions that are getting made um, on the big platforms. Because the big platforms affect all of us as filmmakers. Uh, Disney shot Hamilton a while ago. I mean, Lin-Manuel Miranda was still in the cast at the time. And it was going to be.
1: 2016. When? Summer 2016.
0: There's a lot of films that have been moved from theatrical release to home release through this pandemic. This is, I think, the biggest movie we have seen moved from a theatrical release to a home release by the pandemic. There's obviously been a lot of movies that that's been the case, but I think with a lot of bigger movies, um, studios have been moving back and moving back. Obviously, every two weeks, Tenant moves back again, another two weeks, and we don't know, you know, it'll be 2028, 20, and they'll still be like, Tenant moves back two weeks. <laughs> but we're struggling right now with that pandemic obviously and i think disney made a very smart move but this was like a christmas release for them i think it was sometime in the fall and they're like you know what we're just going to move it up and put it in the home we're gonna we're we're gonna recognize the world we're living in right now and we're gonna say people are hungry for unifying things to watch at home and they moved Hamilton up, and clearly it was a really smart move for them. It tremendously bumped. They haven't really subscriber data, but based on the Google search result data, I think it is very obvious that we've seen a tremendous new subscriber base for Disney Plus from this. What's interesting is that it also really calls to mind. I'm gonna. So I didn't watch it because I have a baby, and my baby wouldn't understand it, and we don't have time to watch a two hour movie uh, around baby three three hour movie around baby. I will watch it eventually. But you know, it's interesting. I've talked to more than one person who's like, yeah, I remember when I first saw Hamilton in 2015 or 2016, I thought it was really revolutionary. And now I watch it and it's only five years later and it seems really fucked up that it's about a bunch of slave owners and they never talk about everybody being slave owners. And I was like, oh, yeah, I kind of assumed that they must have reckoned with this slave owneriness of all of our founding fathers cuz George Washington owned slaves and chased them when they escaped and Jefferson owned and raped slaves and Hamilton didn't own slaves himself but like negotiated the buying and selling of slaves for his in-laws so i just assumed that that was part of Hamilton but apparently no. not part of Hamilton and something no. that many people i know who watched it for the first time in the last 2 weeks or for the first time in like 5 years 2 weeks ago were like yeah that seems really kind of weird now
1: do you think that would have happened if this had been released without the greater context of Black Lives Matter marches and context?
0: I think these aren't fresh criticisms. They are freshly mainstream criticisms. I think yeah. a lot of people in 2015 and 2016 had frustrations with Hamilton. And I think they the show was such a tremendous hit that it sort of glossed all that over. And then mm-hmm. now in the... Context of releasing Hamilton simultaneous to Black Lives Matter, I think a lot of criticisms from the original release are now coming back. I mean, for instance, there's a play, The Haunting of Lin Manuel Miranda, written by Ishmael Reed. Ishmael Reed is sort of a giant of the New York literary scene who wrote this play that is sort of a um, a Christmas Carol, but it's about Lin Manuel Miranda being haunted by the ghosts. You know, the argument Ishmael Reed makes is Hamilton casting a black cast in Hamilton about the founding fathers would be like doing a production in Berlin about the Nazis with an all Jewish cast. And then not acknowledging that the Nazis had done what they had done. I'm tacking that part on, but like if they're not acknowledging the slave owner of all of these characters, if they're taking all of that out, it's really weird. (laughs) It's like, uh, so you're bringing in this casting, which is radical, but you're removing this thing that's incredibly relevant to what's going on with the characters and it's sort of an interesting context to release it all in. You know, they announced they were going to do the July 4th release before the Black Lives Matter um mm-hmm. resurgence in June. I think these are issues that a lot of people were caring about for the last 150 years since the Civil War as we've tried to reckon with it, but it's also stuff that was out of the mainstream briefly for a minute as everybody was worried about dying from a virus. And now that it's exploded back into the mainstream and is really getting dominant attention and is really getting the kind of engagement that people have always wanted, I think that there's all yeah, it it is a strange decision. I haven't seen the play. Apparently, Ishmael Reed hasn't seen the play. So
1: He's never seen Hamilton?
0: Apparently. I was reading an interview, um, despite writing the The Haunting of Linda yeah. and Well Miranda. Um, I would you have actually seen Hamilton.
1: So I have seen Hamilton on Broadway with this cast. I actually saw it in previews. It was kind of an accident. How did you so know to
0: it? see it in previews?
1: <laughs> I didn't. I I knew we were seeing something fairly important. And I knew that more when Adam Driver sat down basically next to us. And I was like, what are we seeing again? Like that was the level of context that we had it was very little because it wasn't out officially yet. So I've seen it, this cast on Broadway, and then I've saw. I saw the film with my folks over the 4th of July weekend, like half the country. I will start by saying I want to name that Broadway and theater is a really special place that right now is, I think it's 99% unemployed. Yeah. Is what I was told the number is, and is not coming back until 2021. And without Broadway and theater, there would be no Hamilton. And I had wished that there was a way to incorporate that need or a way to contribute to that need in this. Because it wasn't lost on me that it was filmed during a performance, that this was on Broadway for a long time. It felt absent of that acknowledgement of that this is all those people that were in the show, not just in the show, but the ushers and the sound people, everyone that's involved with those shows, like no one's working right now, at least in that sphere. And so I had wished that I know Disney paid a lot of money for Hamilton. I wish that they had also contributed to I don't know if there's a fund for for folks that are on Broadway that aren't working anymore or if there was a way to say, hey, if you signed up for Disney Plus this week to watch Hamilton, a portion of the sign up that you're going to sign up, like the fund, you the the price you gave to sign up for Disney, Disney Plus will go to this. Fund because it felt like it, absent of hey like a, a way to contribute to that and I want to name that one I love you all that are working in theater and that are not working right now due to the current pandemic and two I wish that had been named in some way and then two I loved the conversation that came out of this of whether or not Hamill film was eligible for Oscars <laughs> um I it reminds me of the Emmys the other the Emmys specials portion where there's like you can get nominated for recording a award show or a special in the Emmys. That's what it feels like in this way. I also it just shows that we're eager for content. We're eager for films. And so we're we're hoping that anything and everything can be turned into an awards contender uh, for Oscars. Well,
0: and then the other question that comes up for me is, you know, notoriously digital residuals are less Mm -hmm. good than theatrical residuals. So does this decision change the financial picture for those who are in this? I mean, I think it does. I think for a lot of actors, I mean, granted, for a lot of actors, if you're in a small indie movie, you're not expecting a big theatrical back end. But if you're in Hamilton, and especially, you know, uh, Broadway performers' salaries are always complicated. Hamilton ran for a while with this cast, so hopefully they got paid pretty well by the end. But in the beginning, nobody is getting paid well. And you know, a big theatrical run of their taping could have been a real hit for them. and it is kind of a bummer to be to move it to digital, where, you know, because unions negotiate for these things, I mean, this is what our big um, this is what our big strike was about way back was that two thousand seven digital residuals that strike. Um, and it, you know it got better, but it certainly didn't get amazing. And, uh, yeah, I I do wonder if this hurt the performer's back end.
1: It is exciting to see something that was named and labeled as this magical transcendent experience to be no longer behind a $500 plus paywall, right? There's something really kind of important about the fact that everyone keeps saying that, oh, it's a masterpiece and it's changing culture and there are lines people refer to. And if you've never seen the show, you don't know what they're referring to. It is... Now, a lot of more i I don't want to say everyone because because right now everyone is cutting back on their expenses, so Disney plus may not be in the cards for everybody, but the you know the the amount of entry the entry level is lower in terms of as opposed to buying a ticket to a Broadway show to be able to see this. And that piece cannot be understated. I think that there's a level of to be able to say this is a cultural phenomenon. And you can go see it on your computer is something that I think that we should be able to do more of.
0: Up next, some movie theater chains, specifically AMC Cinemark Regal, taking some inspiration from the churches, getting litigious. They're suing the state of New Jersey to be allowed to reopen because as New Jersey reenters stage two of reopening, they're allowing churches to reopen. And AMC and Cinemark are saying, well, that's creating protected class. If they're allowed to put a bunch of people in a seat, you know, the seating in churches, not wildly different than the seating in a theater. In many ways, you're probably sitting further from people in a theater than you are from a church. And I understand the tremendous pressure to get theaters, to get churches reopened. And I can understand why a government might say, okay, well, next stage, we're going to let churches reopen. But when you do that, you are creating sort of a protected class, which is not really constitutional. So it makes sense to me that AMC and other groups would say, well, if you're letting churches reopen, you have to let us too. Like you're, you're doing it for their content, not for the safety regulations. If they're substantially similar, you know, obviously even though churches are open, we can still say safely say like, okay, big music concerts with 50,000 people and NBA Mm -hmm. games shouldn't still open. Those are very different things with very different setups, but like, Fifty people in a church, fifty people in a movie theater. Similar setups, similar time durations. Um, I think movie theaters probably have better, in my experience, HVAC uh, mm-hmm. and are more willing to invest money in uh, filtration systems in order to uh, keep the air circulation uh, strong. So I think that it's an interesting case. It's a case that when you first hear theater suing for the right to reopen. You know, when when uh, Elon Musk was first like, I'm opening whether you let me or not back in April, like that was a little ridiculous. But I think as we enter stages of reopening, it starts to get more and more difficult as some uh, institutions are allowed to open and others aren't. It starts to really seem inconsistent. And I can really see the argument uh, where they're saying, actually, no, this is these are so similar. You cannot make an argument to open one than the other. Also, one of our writers had a really good take, which is that for many cinema can be church and that our writer uh, regularly went to church every Mm. Sunday morning for merch, went to movie church, merch, M-U-R-C-H, to see whatever was playing at the local multiplex every Sunday morning. It is a form of worship. So I can, I mean, I can see these, uh, I can see these arguments, I mean, look, I want to see movies in theaters, but I also want to be safe, and I want to slow the spread, and I'm not an epidemiologist.
1: Yeah, for me, the question isn't which one of these should open, but why are we reopening things at all? Like, I'm still in that stage of – Yeah. Or phase, my own personal phase of, should we really be doing this? And by by this, I mean opening things indoors at all. Indoors is the
0: key word there, because New York actually seems to have done okay so far – with yes. outdoor dining. Seems to have been fine. We have not seen a spike yet. And then we um and then we actually stopped. We are holding off on indoor dining.
1: California is behind and actually part of the states that are seeing a spike. If I traveled to New York, you guys would quarantine me. Oh yeah, you're on our list. So, yes. Go us. Totally winning. Winning all the awards over here. So that's I still ask those questions. I'm not yet at the questions of which one should be open. It's a question of should we be opening things at all? Based on the information that I you just shared and the information that I've heard, yes, that makes sense. That potentially if churches are opening, indoor movie theaters should also open. My hunch is part of this is that no one everyone keeps pushing back their dates, right? Every every week it's like, Oh, we're two weeks later. And now it's October. And now it's August and it's hard to keep track. I think Tenet should really pull on its time travely mind bending thing and just say it's opening in like 1999 and just see what happens, you know? <laughs> like they should just pull a date that doesn't exist. 2099 <laughs> and just see what happens.
0: I love that. I <laughs> I completely 99. agree that we will be watching Tenet in 1999.
1: Exactly, because they should just land on that. And I saw an article too and it's curious. I'm cur- I don't know I don't know how much Chris Nolan plays a role in making those decisions. I know that every for obvious reasons, like tenant needs to be seen and really set up to be seen in a theater. Why we're not just saying, can it just open in January twenty twenty one when all of this has passed us is kind of the question I keep asking. Obviously the money question, but
0: I mean tenant in particular, I don't know, but I do know that the vast majority of movies at that You know, uh, it was so weird to me when I first learned this one, uh, about the movie industry when I got here, but you know, all of those movies are made with debt, So they have a release date and that release date is designed because part of the budget is like, you know, I don't know anything about tenants financing. So I'm just going to say random $200 million movie. You make a random $200 million movie. You borrow $200 million from a bank. You're paying interest on that from the moment of the loan. So it's not like, you know, when you hear things like this studio put in money, The studio might have put in money. The studio might have also just put in borrowed money and they were able to do that because they're the studio and they have a track record of making movies. So a bank is willing to loan to them, but it's still the bank's money, not their money. So you're paying interest on that and you're building all of that around a release cycle because if you're making a $200 million movie, the interest on that is aggressive obviously you and you're making those payments as you go even if you're not paying anything on the principal you're you're immediately making interest payments and so many of these massive massive sort of tentpole studio movies they've got their date and moving that date around and changing that date around is Really problematic because you're pushing it back, and that's extra payment. So the budget's going up because they're sitting on this debt. No, that's not every movie. I'm, there are definitely big studios and Disney and whatnot that don't find you know that that have the cash reserves where they can just pay for things out of pocket if they feel the need to. Um, and so that's not it. But like that's many big movies. I suspect that in some part of the process of tenant, whether it's the production of tenant itself or the studio backing it or whatever. everybody just knows it's a Chris Nolan movie and it will make money. And if you're a studio, you would just like revenue as soon as you can, like any revenue you can get in to start stanching. Some of the bleeding would be great. And tenant is the big thing where everybody's like, yeah, everybody would like to see tenant. So can we please just get tenant out as soon as we can? I don't know. I mean, I don't know anything about the financing on tenant. I don't know if they're bleeding money and interest charges. um, Although I suspect they might be, but I, I certainly think, uh, has a lot to do with that kind of pressure. All right, on to tech news. Our first smaller tech news story. We're really dragging out the lead on this one. We're burying it as hard as we can. <laughs> yeah. Our first smaller news, Zoom Audio, a company so great, I forgive them for a name that I hate. Um, <laughs> the reason why I hate the name Zoom is it makes it really hard to Google. You know, like when you're having a problem or something, you want to find out a fact like Zoom also means lens also means now that video conferencing app.
1: I was going to say, I have friends that thought they were the same company and they're not.
0: Everything else Zoom does is great. I just am annoyed by the name, but but I've been annoyed by the name for 10 years and I'll just get over it. Um, Zoom audio you know they they really blew up about a decade ago with the Canon 5D because the original DSLRs had really terrible audio and so terrible. you needed an external audio recorder of some sort so you could get better audio and they had the H4 which was sort of the the yeah. the everywhere audio recorder that gave you better audio preamps and better recording and and four inputs and it was the H4 was like everywhere couple years later the h6 came out i'm recording on an h6 this very moment Has six audio inputs uh it's got the little swappable mic thing on top and four xlr's and i use it all the time i love it i think it's great it also has this nifty audio interface feature and zoom has just come out with the brand new h8 which has six xlr inputs and two other inputs it looks weird it looks a little bit like uh it looks like an eight or it looks like a pineapple, or it looks like a, a, an octa recorder. Once you plug in the XLR recorders, it looks a little like a, like an insect. It's got yes. an interesting difference in look. And they've completely redone the UI, the user interface, it, um, you still have all the same hardware controls you're used to out of the Zoom. You got the physical knobs for adjusting volume. I love those physical knobs. I'm so grateful for those physical knobs. Mm -hmm. Um, They're really, really useful and appreciated, but they have also changed, you know, there's always been a little screen on the Zoom and like, I'm fine with the menu structure on the H6, but it's actually kind of terrible. And now it is like a touchscreen UI interface with apps and modes. And so there's like a podcasting mode, music recording mode, sound recording for media mode, and then the mode changes all of the settings and you get just a much nicer user interface. And honestly, I'm gonna say that that might be worth the upgrade price if you're debating the, the six or the eight. I use the six every like two or three times a week and I love it and I think it's phenomenal but I think a nicer, a slightly more organic, ergonomic UI is actually probably worth the bump up to the 8. Now, here's one thing to remember. The 8 is sticking with 24-bit audio. So 24-bit audio is sort of industry standard. I mean, frankly, 10 years ago, 16-bit audio was industry standard. 24-bit audio is, is... industry standard. You are watching movies in the theater all the time, recorded 24-bit. It is wildly common. Everything in TV. This isn't like HD versus 8K, 24-bit. It is very common, very acceptable. You can make beautiful sound with it. But a lot of recorders, including the F-Line from uh, Zoom and including some stuff from their competitor, Mixpre, from sound devices, record into a new format called 32-bit. And 32-bit, specifically 32-bit floating point recording, is offers an incredibly wide dynamic range of audio and so if you've ever been recording a lot of audio where someone starts speaking really loudly or they start whispering sometimes when people make really really loud noises and you didn't adjust volume or whatever you get some clip outs you get some you know it, really really quiet sounds you can get some uh, like a sort of background noise from the vibrations of the atoms in the system the zoom h8 24-bit, you're still going to deal with all those. If you bump up mm-hmm. to a 32-bit recorder, you actually have so much dynamic range that you don't have to worry as much about writing the pot. So a lot of people are of really getting tempted by 32-bit recorders for the sort of smaller productions. It's a feature that's really attractive on the sort of one mule team jobs because mm-hmm. on a bigger production, you, you know, you always guaranteed you've got someone watching the levels full time. But sometimes on a little production, you know, you are you got one person, they're manning the camera, they're manning the audio, they're manning other stuff. And so the ability to have that more dynamic range is worth the price upgrade. I am actually a little shocked 32-bit float's not in the H8.
1: I called it the zombie spider. That was my name for it when I saw it. It just looked like something that could have been released on Halloween or oh, April Fools <laughs> yeah. or something.
0: It almost looks like the alien facehugger.
1: Yeah, exactly. I would have loved – I use the H4N – H four n pro a lot on the carpet when I do interviews um, when the end goal is mostly transcription as opposed to mixed sound in a in a podcast or an audio and I would love that to have the touchscreen oh my god I want it to go backwards into <laughs> implement them t- and want them to implement it into their other menu facing not all of them have the great have the screen so anything that had the screen in their in their repertoire that would be fantastic. Have you ever felt limited by the XLR inputs on the eight, on the H6?
0: Never once. Here's okay. here's where this is. This is for musicians. Yeah. This yeah. is for I want a bass, two guitars, drums, and a vocalist. And that's more XLRs than so that's really what it is. Yes. But what filmmakers are jealous of is the nice fancy touchscreen interface.
1: Totally. Also, as a as a musician, you often can sometimes you record two. So if I plug a guitar in, I can plug a guitar in, and I'll mic the guitar because those are two different types of sound. Yes, and so you get two of. Now that you have multiple options, you can do that multiple times, which is lovely.
0: Also, also every year at Sundance we do those great roundtable interviews. We use a we use a multi. Everybody gets their own mic thing when you do those big roundtables. So that's a thing.
1: I could see that being really helpful. Touchscreen included, man. The touchscreen. I'm so excited to. Want that. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, they, they need to come out with a, a new version of the H4 with a touchscreen. It would be really useful. Yes. All right. Now here we are. Okay. Canon R5. You made it. Officially announced. Final specifications right in front of me. We are looking at an 8K RAW camera. Which is nuts. So nice. Uh, if you haven't been following all the news on the Canon R5, uh, the Canon R5 is the new RF mount full frame mirrorless camera from Canon. So what does that mean? Full frame is the fuller sensor size that we associate with 35 millimeter still film. Uh, it's like 24 millimeters by 36 millimeters. It's a popular image size format of the last couple of years. Now, full frame has been around for. A while in digital and in fact the camera that sort of started the dslr revolution the 5d mark ii it had a full frame mm-hmm. sensor but it had a full frame sensor that had a mirror in front of it um yeah. and used the older ef lens mount and because of that you couldn't adapt it to the lenses we love the pl mount lenses of cinema canon two years ago came out with the rf mount which is a mirrorless system um but weirdly their first camera Brand new lens mount, RF lens mount, now I can adapt it to PL, I can adapt it to all sorts of other things. Really exciting. But it was the same sensor as the 5D Mark IV, which was like a couple years old at that point, and only did 4K and wouldn't do 4K external. And it was just like, filmmakers were like, really? Like, we, (laughs) we bought so many 5Ds, and you finally have the lens mount we want. And RF isn't exciting in and of itself as a lens mount. I mean, it's a fine lens mount. It's really exciting because you can adapt it to so many other things. You can pop on a cheap adapter and put on PLs. You can pop on a cheap adapter. You could put, there's Mitchell BNCR adapters. There's someone has probably made a PV mount adapter. I haven't seen it, but I'm sure it exists. Um, There's EF mount adapters. You've got all this flexibility finally, and we wanted it with a new sensor. So the R5 is that new sensor. Brand new sensor, 45 megapixels, 8K video that records raw internal. Beautiful. Crazy good. Um, It is sort of the thing on paper. I mean, nobody has shot this yet, except I'm sure a couple famous people will have videos out by tomorrow that they get to shoot it. But the rest of us didn't get to shoot it yet. So we don't really know, but we do know that You know, Canon is tops in color science. People really love the way Canon looks. It's a very pleasing image. And these are the specs that we have been looking for. And the autofocus is going to work in video mode. And that's actually kind of big news because, you know, Mm -hmm. dual pixel autofocus is actually getting pretty good autofocus obviously got got a bad rap with auto filmmakers because it used to be so terrible but now you're starting to see some professional filmmaking applications where it makes sense I mean the example I always give is you know if you've ever done an interview with a subject who's always leaning back and forth yeah that's really hard to capture on a full frame sensor because full frame was as a smaller depth of field it's going to be really nice to have a you can turn on the autofocus and you know they'll be able to follow with the person they also released a camera called the r6. The R6 is a 20 megapixel camera. It doesn't have all of the um, features that we are looking for as filmmakers. It's definitely more stills focused. Now, it is going to be to the CFast cards. So these cameras have, they don't have two SD card slots. They have an SD card slot and a CFexpress card slot. It's the type B card format. And CF Express is sort of a newer format. SD is great because we all have 50 SD cards because we've all been shooting SD for a decade. But we've sort of reached the limit of what the, the, the physical infrastructure of the card can handle. So the industry is moving over to CF Express. Type B is sort of the card that's closest in physical size to the original SD card. You're going to start seeing more and more products built around CF Express Type B. And you're going to start to see, honestly, less and less SD over the next couple of years. Um, you're only going to be able to shoot raw to the type B card slot. Uh, some initial reports are you might be able to shoot raw to the type B card slot and shoot a, a proxy file to the SD card slot. I don't actually have that confirmed in front of me, but that'll be super nice. I mean, 8k raw files, a lot of our computers are not going to handle them, (laughs) but, uh, but it's going to be nice to have that flexibility when you get into color grading. I mean, this is, this is a move from Canon. Canon is telling you that they're taking this really seriously. That's super cool. Okay, uh, the RAW format is RAW CRM. It is 12-bit RAW video, and it can simultaneously record MP4 10-bit files at the same time. It can also make 4K ultra-fine movie files, and it can shoot in 4K up to 120 frames per second. One of the key features you're seeing here is dual pixel autofocus that covers 100% of the area of the sensor, and it has subject trapping for both people and animals using deep learning technology. Obviously, the animals part of it, you're, you're talking about wildlife photographers who want the ability to you know have their autofocus not just track humans, but also birds, bears. The reason why this is interesting is in that deep learning phrase, anytime you start to see stuff like deep learning, it's implying that there's some sort of artificial intelligence or machine learning aspect to it that's part of how it's identifying people and animals. It does not say that I've seen so far eye autofocus. I autofocus mm. is obviously the thing that we're, you know, the, the dream we're always looking for as filmmakers, and you'll see it every once in a while in tech previews where, you know, it'll be like eye autofocus and a little dot on the screen will land on someone's eye and they'll walk around and it'll stay in focus you're not really seeing it in cameras at at the presumable price point. I mean, this camera R five is going to be in the three to $4,000 range. It's not going to be in the $10,000 range. I don't think. Um, And because it's not in the $10,000 range, I don't think we're going to see a real functional eye autofocus in video mode, but I do think that we're going to see face tracking, you know, it says people and animals and it says deep learning. That's really telling me Mm -hmm. that it's a uh, AI assisted system. And then it's, in combination with the dual pixel autofocus, hopefully going to be a pretty sophisticated system. Autofocus is something filmmakers didn't care about 10 years ago. You know, there's rumors around about Sony releasing their new a7S III this summer. Um, One of the big things people are going to be comparing between the R5 and its competition, the Panasonic S1H and the a7S III when it comes out, One of the things filmmakers are going to care a lot about is that autofocus, because it is starting to be a really killer app. It's an area where Canon and Sony have really been in a vicious battle. And I think it's going to be one of the things that uh, somebody should really set up a very strict head-to-head just on the autofocus of the three systems.
1: It feels good. I have used the entry-level model a couple of times, the EOS R, that used the RF mount and so it's interesting. I also don't know. Maybe you know the answer to the question that happened. What happened to R2, 3, and 4? And we just jumped to R5.
0: <laughs> I mean, for me, the R5 is 5D Mark II. The 5D was there was the one that filmmakers loved. And they would like filmmakers yes. to love this one. So this is the R5. That's fair. That's fair. That's my guess.
1: It would have been interesting for this camera to come out to have landed and to have been used at the Summer Olympics, now that I think about it. Ooh. But I bet it was delayed for obvious reasons, and because there's no Summer Olympics this year, it yep. can't be used there. But next year,
0: if, if there there's probably, an Olympics there'll be, next be other year.
1: options. I
0: know. If we've made it that far. Ropeful
1: thinking. I will gladly go with one. If you would like me to, Canon
0: Hear that, Canon? With- <laughs> She'll talk about it on the podcast.
1: I'll happily do it. No, it's on my, going to the summer Olympics is on my bucket list. I've nailed, now I've said it out loud. So of course it's going to happen.
0: So that's been the no film school podcast for July 10th, 2020. Stay, stay. I got a good plug. So I did a web series. It's called salty pirate. You can watch it on Amazon. It's at salty pirate TV. And we're doing a watch party next Friday, July 17th, you can RSVP on the website at saltypirate.tv. Amazon lets you do these watch parties where 100 people watch together and you get a live chat. So, you know, a character does something you don't like and that actor will probably be on the live chat. You can be mean to the actor about it, even though it's not the actor's fault, but the writer will also be there. So you can also be mean to the writer about it. Um, so July 17th at, at nighttime, uh you can RSVP at saltypirate.tv and even if you don't come to the watch party, if you enjoy the podcast, you should go watch the show I made. It's on Amazon Prime, saltypirate.tv. I don't know how many times I can say that. saltypirate.tv.
1: I'm really excited to join the watch party, Charles, <laughs> and I use that as my pluggable. I'm Michelle Delatour. Thank you for listening this week. At the No Film School podcast, you can find me on the Twitter and the Instagrams at M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R. Two things I'd love to say thank you about. Thank you to those of you who I've been in a press call with. You're still doing your four-year consideration campaigns for the Emmys. I love that they're online and that we got to talk. So thank you very much. And a big thank you to... There was a I had the opportunity to have a curiosity conversation with a junior high student about going into photography and filmmaking to all of you that talked as mentees and mentors and all of the process. Thank you for asking those questions and for giving others a platform to do so. Continue the great work.
0: Thank you very much. See you guys all next week.